Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We have temporarily suspended our in-person service and will be broadcasting live via our Facebook page, Beacon Church, and on our website, beacon.church forward slash live on Sundays at 1030 a.m. until further notice. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. So, just imagine with me uh, a particularly depressing and crisis-filled year. Like, what, what, what would that year look like? Well, you might talk about planet-destroying risks like asteroids and climate change. You might see high-profile men taking advantage of women and girls with numbers like four million trafficked girls being kicked around. You might talk about how wealth would continue to concentrate in the hands of the few. You would have maybe an immigration crisis that ended with kids in cages. You'd have government gridlock and you would have impeachments and you'd have trouble among nations like Brexit and Hong Kong and Venezuela unraveling and you'd have the Amazon burning and that of course was 2019. I mean that is what we were trying to get away from when we started talking about the hopefulness of 2020. One news agency said, we know that you want 2019 canceled, reported, and blocked. It was awful, depressing, and went on far too long. And then we come into 2020, and we're halfway through at this point, and I just, I really, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone Sometimes as I'm, I'm, I'm reading the news and I'm watching what's going on because everything just seems sort of upside down right now. It's crisis piled upon crisis and it's heartache on top of pain and, and there are, are divisions on top of frustrations. How in the world did we get here? Things seem bizarro right now. And it seems that crisis after crisis is sort of just just smashing over us like the waves of a Category 5 hurricane might pummel a little coastal village, which, you know, of course, we've just entered hurricane season, and they're calling for it to be a particularly bad one. And, of course, it's 2020, so, you know, who knows? I joked with someone recently, and I said, listen, could you just, just wake me up when the, the plague of locusts is over? And, and then, of course, I remembered there's actually a plague of locusts 
ravaging parts of the world right now. And I'm thinking, this is just absolutely bizarre. What is God doing in all of this? What is he doing? How are we going to handle these crises? Who will we become? How will we treat other people? How will our society be transformed because of it? Will 2020 go down in history as simply one more bizarro and depressing year? Or will we see it personally and as a spiritual family and socially, will we see it as a year of great breakthroughs? Because that's the hope that the gospel offers of us. Now, of course, there have always been these long periods in history that you could talk about as twilight zone sorts of seasons. And I'm sure there always will be one of these bizarro things that I'd come across recently. It was an exhibit at the Museum of the Bible, and they have on display one of only a few remaining copies of what they call the Slave Bible. So there was a time when Christians actually would use the Bible itself to oppress black people. Now, it's not particularly hard to believe when you understand just how depraved the human heart can be. But you've got to kind of put yourself back in that day and try to figure out what had to go on in their minds for this whole thing to come about. I mean, they knew that if they they simply handed Bibles out and let people read them, that in fact the slaves would begin to see and understand what God's design for human dignity and equality was all about. And so, of course, they said, oh, well, we can't just hand out Bibles and let them read it. It would need to be um, appropriately edited. That's what they would need. In fact, the insert the front cover of the Bible, the little preface there, it says it's the abridged version of the Bible. It came out in 1807. It was published in London and it was used by some British missionaries in order to convert and educate enslaved Africans. It's actually a real thing designed to help instill obedience and to preserve their system of slavery throughout the colonies. So how is it that they actually did it? Well, they they went through the scriptures and they cut it up. I mean, think about this. What they these were these were Christians who really did value the word of God enough that they felt like it was important to get it out there and to teach it to people. And yet they began to, to cut it up. And so they would, you know, they would open up the Bible and they would read and they would say, oh, look, Exodus 21, 16. You know, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. That's no good. We got to get in there and cut that. That's, let's make sure nobody can read those particular verses. That's what they would do. Jeremiah. It's all over the scriptures. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their own labor. We can't can't have that in there. We got to make sure we get all of that cut out of God's word. 
right? I mean, we love God's word. That's what they're telling each other. It's important enough to go out there and teach. We got to make sure they don't see these kinds of passages. You get in to the New Testament and in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a tough one right there. We don't want any sort. I mean, my goodness, even, even the women will get the wrong idea here. We got to make sure those are out. So they cut up the scriptures. They get to a place and they start reading stories like the entire Exodus. And what are they thinking there? They're like, oh, man, the Exodus, that's a whole story about, about slaves just getting freedom. You know, let's make sure we get the story out because you know what trouble will happen. These edits were so significant that out of the nearly 1,200 chapters in the Bible, only 232 chapters remained. That is how deep the cuts needed to go. I mean, this to me feels, it feels like the twilight zone. And yet, is it really so far from our own experience? By way of review, this is part two of this, the messages series that I kind of started as well last week, talking about the ministry of reconciliation. This is part two of the ministry of reconciliation. And, and we saw in uh, 2 Corinthians, so you can go ahead and open up in a Bible to 2 Corinthians, and we saw last week how Christ died on the cross for us in order that we might be reconciled to God. And that is a powerful message found throughout the whole of the scriptures. Powerful reconciliation. But it wasn't simply so that we could now go to heaven and escape the world. Rather, it was so that we can now be used by God to do his work here on earth in what Paul called the ministry of reconciliation. And this was such a key idea. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's our salvation. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our work. That's what we are supposed to do. And so we looked at some of the practices that a reconciler might pursue while we are working out our own ministry of reconciliation. And by way of review from last week, a reconciler, we saw seizes these unique social moments where I argued that this is one of those moments, that, that all of these factors have come to bear right now, and this is a moment for Christians to stand up and to move the needle toward greater racial reconciliation and justice. We also saw that this is a time where a, a reconciler would develop great charity, and it was there that I argued that we as Christ followers should never jump to the worst possible conclusions about each other or anyone else for that matter. And then we ended it by talking about how a reconciler will listen and love. And we talked about the story with Daryl Davis and how through his great respect and kindness and love, he was able to collect dozens and dozens of clan robe trophies from people who had left the clan because of his genuine love and friendship and respect. And so, and so we, we push in a little bit further this week into this ministry of reconciliation, and we see that it carries with it 
a message of reconciliation, right? The ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And of course, that involves reconciliation between God and you. And that is so absolutely true. But many Christians have begun to go in and we have, we have, we have snipped a little here and a little there and we have ended with a distorted message of reconciliation. It talks about reconciliation between men and women. And there have been for many years people who have said, no, we don't want that part of the message of the Bible. We look at other places, reconciliation between ourselves and the planet. And they say, we got to take a scissor to that. It sounds, it sounds too much like tree hugging. There has to be reconciliation between humanity and God's morality. And we have a whole group of people saying, those are dated, antiquated ideas about how we ought to live. And so they, they snip, snip, take a little bit out of God's word. There's reconciliation between the rich and the poor. There's reconciliation of the nations. And this is a deeply ethnic promise of the gospel. And it's so important for us to understand this. So if you want to do like a quick little overview to see just how woven in this idea is, you can start in the very beginning of the Bible and track it all the way through. So at the very beginning of the Bible, you have the story of Genesis. And in the first two chapters, we see that man and woman were perfectly united. They were reconciled between themselves and their God. And it was an absolutely beautiful paradise. And then in Genesis 3, we see the divisions start to come. And we're separated because of our sin and rebellion. We're separated from our creator. And after that, we start to see the breach in the relationship between man and woman. And then we see the breach in the family, and we see how, how they're no longer reconciled, and they're being increasingly driven apart. And then power structures start to form in society. And this goes on for the first bunch of chapters, and all of a sudden you get to the place of Babel. And in Babel, God sees humanity unite itself against him. And he says, this can't be. We can't allow humanity to try to unite itself against their creator because then all of them will go astray. And so he divided the peoples into the nations, into the ethnos, each ethnicity. And then what do we see from there? Well, God comes back on the scene and he says, I am going to pick one man, Abraham, and I am going to call him out and I'm going to raise him up and his people to show the rest of the planet the way back to God. And so in that original charge to Abraham, what was he promised? He was told that through him, all of the nations would be blessed. And then we began to see that unfold. So the Jewish people become a nation. But it wasn't without, just in, within a few chapters, we start to see how the outsiders are brought in and reconciled to the people of God. Not just outsiders ethnically, but we also see how the foreign women, who so many would have looked down upon, we see Rahab and Tamar and Ruth, and we see them being folded into God's great story. 
and becoming a part of the people of God. But of course, it wasn't simply them because then you have the promise of God to the nations as we see in the prophet Jonah. Even though Jonah didn't want to go to the nations, God said, no, you will go. They're different from you and I love them. And I want to pour out my mercy on them. And Jonah, he couldn't understand it. And God is saying, don't you see the messages for the whole of the planet? And then prophets after him began to speak about the nations all coming into the new Jerusalem. In fact, we get to the New Testament in Jesus. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah at the very beginning of, of his, own, his own teaching ministry. And the prophecy he quotes from ends at the end of the book of Isaiah with this incredible promise that all of the nations were going to be restored in Christ. Wow, what a promise. And then before Jesus ascends into heaven, after having ministered to Jew and Samaritan and Gentile across the ethnic spectrum of his day, right before he ascended, he wanted something ringing in the ears of the apostles, the ones who would go out and represent his love to the world. And he told them, go into Samaria and go to the ends of the earth, go into the nations. This is a racial cry. Bring reconciliation among the races. And then you have Peter in the book of Acts, and he has a vision from God, and, and, and this great sheet comes down from heaven, and there's clean food and unclean food. And Peter says, I'll never eat from the unclean food. And God says, don't call anything I have called clean. Don't you call it unclean. And he was trying to teach Peter and that it was time for a breakdown of all of their ethnic identities as they would be reconciled together in Christ. The first church council, they had to answer questions. How is it that Jew and Gentile could worship together as one? These are racial conversations. You see this beautifully in the teaching of Paul. He talks about the outsiders being grafted into the line of Abraham. We're, we're grafted into Abraham and we become Abraham's children. It goes back to the original promise to Abraham, which of course was that we would all be a blessing to the nations. And of course, in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the nations will walk in the light of the new Jerusalem. And they'll be healed by the leaves that grow in the city on the trees of life. We cannot snip this part out of the gospel message. So where else have we snipped the scriptures? I think we've discarded how we are supposed to treat each other. And I think this is a big part of, a, of the controversies and the tension that we're feeling right now. In 2 Corinthians 6, just a little bit further down, it says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves, listen carefully, we commend ourselves in every way. What does that mean? We commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, 
in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposter. So Paul is writing this to a church in conflict. And you can go through here and apply all of these things that he is saying to our current circumstances. So have you put a stumbling block in anyone's path lately? Ask this, search your hearts. Paul says that he is going to endure great abuse and challenges in order to get the full message of the gospel out. That means he's going to go the extra mile. Will you? He says that he'll endure slander and gossip and abuse. Will you? As our Lord told us, will we turn the other cheek? I mean, in all of this, Paul is going to be unflappable in love. Listen to what he's understanding, patient, kind. I kind of want to wrap all of these words up, and I like that word, unoffendable. That's what it sounds like. To me, if I had to pick one word to capture this whole long list of virtues, I would use that word to be unoffendable. Listen, people come from all sorts of different backgrounds and opinions, and I have been saddened at how quickly we will judge a brother and sister for a post, for an attitude that we think is wrong. We have insensitivity to people's hurts and experiences. Where is the understanding? Where is the kindness? Where is the patience? How is it that we can use our words and our communication to be unoffendable so that others might more fully come into the ministry of reconciliation? So that we can be ministers of reconciliation. Right now there's so much arrogance that is out there. And there is so much of a dismissing of how other people feel and how they experience the world. I also want to point out one final part of St. Paul's exhortation to us as we often will sort of casually snip this out of the Bible. But I think it can be a powerful motivator for us as we seek to become ministers of reconciliation. So it isn't enough for us to tell Christians that you can be reconciled to God and that you don't really have to worry about this life. Paul, he raises the stakes on every single crisis that we face. He says that even though our crises here are temporary, how we respond to them will last forever. Think about that. Even though our crises here are temporary, how we respond to them lasts forever. In 2 Corinthians, he says, So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. See, life after death matters. In the ancient world, in Corinth, actually, one of the philosophical ideas of the day was put forward by a name man, Epicurus, and uh, you could find his quote on many of the tombstones in Corinth and around the Roman Empire at this time in history. Translated, it says, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. You see the hopelessness of what they're saying. I was not, and one day I won't be again. Just because I exist now, it doesn't mean anything about the future. And, and Paul and the Christians, they come on the scene and they go, no, 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 no. You are and you will forever be, which means you have to care now. You have to care now. Because we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The word here for judgment seat, it translates a word, it's the bema seat, the bema seat. And we're all going to appear before the bema seat. Corinth was a spectacular city. It had all of these exceptionally beautiful and famous civic structures. And one of the finest, which of course is now in ruins, was the bema seat. And it was the center of a large marketplace. And it was the place where the community would gather. It was the seat of judicial pronouncements. And it was also a place for sort of public discourse. And uh, Paul himself in Acts chapter 18 had actually stood here accused and had to offer his own defense in Corinth earlier in his life. And so he's referencing that moment. And he's saying, listen, just like we will stand before an earthly judge, we have to remember that we will stand before our heavenly judge as well. All will be laid bare before the judgment seat. We have to just let that sink in for just a moment. You see, every single person will one day give an account of their lives before the king of the universe. Every single one of us. During the Protestant Reformation, one of Martin Luther's uh, confidants was Melanchthon. And he said it like this, from as early as the Reformation, he said, We teach that good works are meritorious, not for the forgiveness of sins, grace, nor justification, for we obtain these only by faith, but for other physical and spiritual rewards in this life and in that which is to come, there will be distinctions in the glory of the saints. Sometimes we don't live our lives in the acknowledgement of what is to come. 1 Corinthians, another place, chapter 3, it says it like this, If anyone builds on the foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. Or we get Revelation 22. He says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, look, I am coming soon. 
My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. So at the Bema seat of Christ, believers are going to be rewarded based on how faithfully they have served Christ, how well we obeyed the Great Commission, how victorious we were over sin, whether we controlled our tongues, whether we were gossips or complainers, whether we persevered under suffering, whether we endured injustice and how we fought for justice. Every hidden thought, every secret action, every harsh word, every dreamer that we have squashed, every brother or sister that we have insulted, we will be judged for how unoffendable we were in the face of crisis and whether we continued, despite everything, to love the way Christ loved. The self-indulgent, lazy Christian will not receive the full blessings of the kingdom of God. We don't want to cut that part out of our gospel message. Many scholars have asked, how is it that the slaves who were oppressed by Christians wielding the Bible against them became the black community of faith that we have seen throughout history with some of the most devout Christ followers in, in all of church history? How did that sort of transition ever take place? It seems so impossible, so unlikely. It's because they eventually got an unedited dose of the real thing. Black and white and brown missionaries began to tell the whole of the gospel story. One of the early pioneers in this was Rebecca Proton. She lived on the island of St. Thomas during the 1730s. She was a slave. She ended up obtaining her freedom, and she joined the movement to preach the message of Christ to the African slaves throughout the areas that she had access to in Europe and in the Caribbean. And she became one of the first ordained African-American women in Christian history and boldly went in to proclaim the fullness of God's message of reconciliation. A couple of scholars were writing about these days, Emerson, and, uh, Emerson Prowery and Rodney Sadler, in a book entitled The Genesis of Liberation. Their answer to this question was that the slaves fell in love with the God of Scripture because in Christ they found salvation from their sins and reconciliation. They went on to explain that they found a God who was not distant and merely promising something in the future, in eternity, but instead he was a God of the here and now who cared for the oppressed and he worked to deliver them from their abusers. And they, and they also found Jesus, a, a suffering savior whose life and struggles paralleled their own struggles. They went on to say that the enslaved Africans found reasons to believe not only in the liberating power of the God of Scripture, but in the liberating emphasis of Scripture itself. 
because they learned that the Bible did not denigrate African identity. They were able to use it to ground their humanity subversively to rebut supremacist readings, to validate their right to be free and function as equals in this nation. It created a community of faith and it provided the Afro-Atlantic people with an ideology of resistance. Thank God for the courage of so many who made this real. You want to know how we can become part of the solution rather than part of the problem? We've got to stop cutting out the parts of the gospel that we don't like. We need to take God at his word because the ministry of reconciliation is going to struggle if we start snipping out the parts of the gospel that are difficult for us. We have to start living with the biblical conviction of love and a lack of judgment and charitable kindness and respect. And we have to dedicate ourselves to living the full of the gospel with each other, practicing the unfailing and unoffendable love of Christ. And then we can use our positions of power and privilege and strength as a force for justice and reconciliation in this world. May God do that and so much more in our midst. Would you you join me as we pray? Father, what we are hoping for is, Lord, that you would do this incredible thing for us. It has been all too easy throughout history for us to truncate your word, to read and to apply the parts that are easy, not the parts that are hard. For us to to use your word to judge others, not our own hearts. And in that way, Father, we have desecrated your word to us. Lord, it bothers us with the idea of someone destroying a Bible, ripping it up or cutting it. It bothers us. We, we see it as, as a great wrong. And yet, Father, you tell us we do this when we refuse to do all that you've called us to do, when we truncate this message of hope, of reconciliation, of love. We refuse to live that way and to grant that to each other. Lord, make us the kinds of people who will look full on into the power of your word and let it transform our lives so that we can go out in the power of your love to transform a society that so desperately needs it. Fill us with the power of your spirit. We pray it in Christ's name.